Hello out there, Louise Oliver here, co-founder and producer of the Persistent and Nasty Initiative. Before we begin episode 10 with the fabulous Sarah Rose Graber, I've got a few bits of business to get out of the way. First of all, apologies that the sound quality on this episode is not quite as it should be. Due to the nature of the venue where we recorded, there was a little bit more ambient noise than we had first anticipated. We are currently on the hunt for a regular studio or a meeting space somewhere, uh, preferably in Glasgow, to record our podcasts so that we can ensure what we put out there is of a consistently high quality. We love being in your ears and we want that to be a mutually enjoyable experience. Next up, a bit of news. This coming week, we will be launching our Patreon page. Um, Patreon is a subscription content service that allows creators and artists to build stronger relationships with their community and provide exclusive membership experiences and content to their patrons. The real tea is that Persistent and Nasty is struggling due to limited resource, and if we're going to survive, then we need to create a sustainable income model. As rewarding as producing all things nasty is, it's also pretty draining and expensive. Additionally, we don't currently have the budget to do all the things that we want and need to do in order to be truly inclusive and accessible. We need to level up. The reason we've decided to try Patreon is because its subscription-style payment model empowers both us, the creators, and you, the patrons. The model is a win-win. Creators retain creative freedom and patrons get to rest easy knowing that their money goes directly towards creating more of what they love. One of the most important things to us here at Persistent and Nasty and what we believe is at the core of what we do is community. Using Patreon as a fundraising platform provides us with an opportunity to connect and communicate directly with the people interested in what we're doing. It allows us a chance to have more freedom and autonomy in terms of what we do, how we do it and who we are doing it for. It puts us in the position of answering directly to the people that engage with the project. You support us and we give back in a multitude of ways. You have a voice, you have a stake. Patreon gives us a space to share all of our content in combination with extras and bonus material for our incredible supporters. Our Patreon page is now live at www.patreon.com forward slash persistent and nasty. That's Patreon. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash persistent and nasty. So you can head over there to find out more about the membership tiers and what's available to you if you choose to become a patron. If you want to get more involved with what we're doing and have thoughts or questions about our content or want to support us in other ways that don't necessarily mean a financial or a membership subscription, you can drop us a line at persistentandnasty at gmail.com. Right, thank God that bit's over. The money bit is icky but sadly necessary. Some exciting news now. Our very own Elaine Stirrett, my esteemed co-founder and chair of the Glasgow branch of Equity, is standing for the Equity Women's Committee. All you Equity members out there will get a voting nomination, so if you are keen on equality and having a strong, fair and driven voice in your corner, then I'd strongly encourage you to vote for Elaine. I think that's all for now. Now on to the sublime Sarah Rose Graber. Thanks, as always, for listening, and remember to stay nasty. So let's uh, start with um, you saying who you are. I'm very excited to be chatting to you, Sarah Rose. Oh, Would thanks. you like to introduce yourself? I'd love to. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm Sarah Rose Graber. Um, originally from Miami, Florida, uh, and then went to Chicago to study theater there at Northwestern University. And now I'm based here in Glasgow after a lot of uh, circuitous traveling and, and rooting about making theater which i'm very excited about here in glasgow <laughs> we're thrilled to have you oh it's so great being here i absolutely love love this city it's amazing what well, made you um, decide to 
stay here? Yeah, well, I had the first time uh, I came to the UK was actually, I did my acting certificate at RADA and I loved it and it put me in contact with people from all over the world and it really sparked my interest in kind of international theater making and just meeting people from different backgrounds. Um, so I knew I wanted to get back out this way but hadn't spent a ton of time in Scotland. Uh, and an opportunity came along to apply for a Fulbright Award, which is a U.S. government grant-based uh, award program. Uh, and I applied to come to the U.K. and learn more about devising and creating new work in innovative and multidisciplinary ways. And I got it. So I came out here and I went, whoa, this place is even better than I realized. <laughs> I mean, I thought it would be great, but I, I was totally blown away by just the warmth of the community, but also the really incredible work that was being done uh, in every corner of the country. It was really impressive uh, to see that kind of quality of work. So I loved it. I was like, I need to come back. <laughs> the Fulbright Award, that's a biggie in the States, isn't it? Like, mm -hmm. like super geniuses get that, if I'm not very much mistaken. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's been actually really humbling to be here where I, I don't think a lot of people know about the award. Right. Uh, so <laughs> it's, uh, I'm really, I'm incredibly honored to have gotten one. It's a, certainly a, a, a prestigious thing in the U.S. Yeah. And, uh, was something that even just applying to, you feel a little bit of that imposter syndrome of like, right. can I apply for this? Am I, <laughs> am I doing work that's innovative enough in my field? Um, yeah, you're sort of in, in the company of some pretty Im impressive people. So, so just a curiosity, do you happen to know what the uh, gender balance is in terms of the recipients of said Ooh. awards? I'd be interested to know. I would be interested as well, actually. I feel like that's something I should know. Mm. Um, and I don't, uh, although I would be inclined to think that it's, it's pretty balanced yeah. um, just from what I've experienced and seen mm -hmm. um, because it taps into a lot of the world of academia as yeah. well. Um, we're certainly seeing, uh, the sh surely there's gender imbalances across all yeah. areas of work, but there really is something for everyone in the Fulbright program because mm -hmm. it is about people uh, being progressive or innovative within their specific field so right. it doesn't kind of alienate across fields it's uh, people who are doing uh, cutting edge work as, yeah. it, as it were or doing research that's taking something forward just so. a thought I had just curious yeah that's no, a great question and I certainly have a lot a lot of thoughts about uh, yeah gender parity and, and equality so it's Indeed. a good question I should look into that well, um, we will definitely come on to that very soon, um, as it is the focus of the Persistent and Nasty project, as I'm yeah. sure you know. But um, let's go back you to you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for being here and uh, chatting to us today, or chatting to me. It's just me today. Um, <laughs> um, so, but to go back to the sort of start of your journey with the UK, who were the sort of first people or companies or artists you worked with that got you excited about what's happening here? Yeah. Well, funny enough, I it was in Chicago where I was living and working and making theater and um, was part of several companies. And Blackwatch came on tour ah. with National Theater of Scotland. Yes. And everybody was going, what is this? <laughs> what is going on in Scotland? This is amazing. It was yeah. such exciting work to be seeing. And it was done at the Broadway Armory in Chicago, mm -hmm. which is a really 
uh, massive space and this show just filled it and it sold out like crazy. Um, and then I saw the strange undoing of Prudencia Hart and I went, something really is happening in Scotland and I want to find out more about it. I want to learn how to make work like that. I want to, yeah, I want to be part of that. Um, so it was incredibly exciting to start digging into some of the work happening. Uh, and my entry point was via National Theatre of Scotland. Uh, my Fulbright allowed me to do work with them on the Tin Forest Project, oh, which amazing. was such an incredible experience. Mm. A chance to kind of work in different communities across the country and build a range of different pieces of new work that centered around this story of uh, sort of the idea of living in this kind of wasteland and uh, being able to make sort of life and vibrancy come out of a derelict space and sort of paralleling that with some of the industry of, of Glasgow's past being something that really drove the, the community of factories and, and uh, manual labor and, and work. Uh, but it being a place that's full of arts and culture and mm. music and good food and, and life and how that creates a, a beautiful place for people to come together. So I loved it. Yeah. So I worked with them. I worked with Playwrights Studio Scotland, which are such an incredible organization, no. aren't they? Shout out to them for all their yeah. support. Yeah, the no Playwrights they Studio do. Scotland. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're amazing. And, and it is a really unique thing to have a company like that, yeah. an organization like that in, uh, in any country, mm -hmm. something that really advocates for writers and new work mm -hmm. because that is shaping our future stories. It's shaping what we put on stages and in turn shaping our industry. Yeah, I think it was um, something I saw on Twitter led me to suddenly realize that we're quite unique and lucky in Scotland in the fact that we do have them. Um, because I think London's just got one, like or uh, a studio dedicated to supporting and nurturing the playwright in that way, in the way that Playwright Studio Scotland do. So I was like, oh, uh, we've been kind of just assuming everyone has this great resource and supportive <laughs> company, but they don't. And again, it's another, I suppose, another great thing about the Scottish theatre landscape that we have yeah. them. Um, it's great. And Scotland really seems to value the writer and always has historically. I mean, the idea of even having a national poet. Um, and, and putting a real value on words and how words are used to share story, to connect people, to be political, to uh, change things. It's really apropos, I suppose, <laughs> that it does exist. Um, but also a special thing that is genuinely unique. Other countries don't necessarily have this kind yeah. of resource. Mm -hmm. um, so, what are you working on at the moment, Sarah Rose? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm working on, on a few things, the joys of freelance living, right? <laughs> Where you're like, oh, like 20 projects. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I, I'm working on one that uh, has been wonderful to get back to the States for, actually. Mm -hmm. It's a piece called The Pullman Project. We've re uh, received National Endowment for the Arts funding, uh, and it's a multi-year project based in the Pullman community of Chicago, which is an old industry town that used to build the Pullman train cars. Um, but it also has a major place in history in America because it was the formation of the first black labor union. Okay. It was one of the first places that hired emancipated slaves to be Pullman porters on the train cars. Right. And it was 
an opportunity for a lot of the black population in America to get jobs and, and be paid. However, the working conditions were terrible. Um, and so the industry there ended up kind of falling apart a bit, but it became a space that had new people moving into it and kind of reclaiming it. Uh, and so there's those who are very connected to the history of that community, but uh, a huge portion of the population as well that are there because of socioeconomic needs. Mm. Um, and so we've been creating a series of performance pieces there that highlight different sort of themes or uh, people within that community of taking the kind of everyday person and, and pointing out their sort of heroic <laughs> way of interacting with the community and the world. Yeah. And it's been a fascinating project. We've done it with in very multidisciplinary ways. Um, and so I've been going back and forth. I've got a, the most recent one coming up is focusing on one of the people who lives in that community, Deborah Jackson, mm. uh, who lives on a street in Pullman that has boarded up houses all around her. And her house is sort of this beautiful home with, you know, a red door and is cared for and inside is a prolific explosion of creativity. She's a jewelry maker, an artist. Uh, she has uh, these incredible doll figurines that she makes. But if you were just walking down the street, you would have no idea. And so this opportunity to focus in on her for this performance is a chance to unpack the kind of creative explosion in this world that the sort of rest of that street is in some ways kind of uh, working in opposition to because of just an array of struggles that exist in a world that we live in today of people not getting the resources they need, yeah. not having access to the kind of support they need, and as a result, houses falling into disrepair. Mm. Um, so yeah, wow. so that's one. That's incredible. <laughs> it's been a cool piece. Um, and that's with my collaborator, Joanna Mendel-Shaw, who's based out of New York uh, with the Equus Projects. Uh, and then I'm doing another piece. This has been a, a really lovely project called Memorial that's exploring our relationship to death in a digital age. Wow. Um, and that's been a collaboration with Morna Young, a uh, fantastic playwright. We love her. We yeah. love her. <laughs> yeah. She was our last podcast, um, ah! two podcasts ago we had her. Oh, stellar. Yeah, yeah she's <laughs> such good people. Um, and also working alongside um, Beverly Hood and Tom Flint. Uh, Beverly uh, Hood is over at Edinburgh University and Tom Flint is at Edinburgh Napier. Uh, who specialize in interactive sort of digital technology uh, and creating spaces where technology is interacted with or um, viewed in an artistic kind of setting. So it's been fantastic bringing all those brain powers together into mm. a space uh, to create this new work. Um, and so we've just gotten a, an award with Edinburgh Futures uh, institute to develop the piece further after doing a residency in Italy at the Museum of Life and Renewal to kind of get ourselves started with a, a virtual reality pilot uh, that we were building for the theatrical experience that we'll be making, mm -hmm. um, which has been very, very cool and great fun. And then I'm co-artistic director of New Ink Theatre, 
uh, with Natalie Arl-Toyne. Yes. Uh, and we've got a, a brand spanking new piece that we are at the very early days of uh, a piece we're calling Donor at the mm. moment, which is all about the underground world of free sperm, the online spaces where free sperm uh, <laughs> is out there in the world. Good to know. <laughs> It is, because it's actually, it's genuinely fascinating. If you are a woman who wants to have a child, and you do not have a partner, uh, you are not allowed to have access uh, via the NHS to IVF treatments. And with yeah, this course, massive oh, yeah. boom, yeah. Of course, uh, yeah, okay, yeah. It's <laughs> so fascinating. <laughs> That's just never occurred to me before. Yeah, go on, say more. Yeah, well, it's <laughs> just this, this kind of really hidden world, I suppose, but it's actually a very large community that's, that's doing this. Um, if for a myriad of, of reasons, there's these challenges that come up when it comes to the world of reproductive medicine, which has been mm. booming at the moment. We've not seen numbers like this ever before, the way people are using reproductive medicine to be able to have babies. Yeah. Um, and as a result, a whole subculture has developed online with these group spaces where people can connect online to find donors to be able to become a pregnant, to conceive. Uh, wow. It's usually done via artificial insemination in public spaces. Uh, not public spaces as in like out in the open, but public like, toilets and right. stuff like that. So not in the bus stop then? Yeah, not in the bus stop. Cool. But maybe the Asda toilets. <laughs> um, and part of that is so legally there's no uh, repercussions or legal rights to anyone having access to the, the child except for the, the woman who wants to conceive this oh. child and bring it into the world. It means that the donor does not have any sort of legal obligations or, okay. or rights to the child. So it brings up all sorts of massive questions around uh, morals and ethics too. Whose choice is it to bring a child into the world? What is mm -hmm. the child's choice in all of this? Um, what about the health risks or concerns of mm -hmm. uh, sexually transmitted diseases if someone hasn't been tested? Or how do you know? Is it okay to want a child and then conceive with someone who is ultimately a stranger who wants you to be able to have that child? Yeah. And where do these judgments come from? Is it our right to sort of judge how someone uh, achieves the ability to conceive. And it, it's, it's really layered and we're learning so yeah. much. We've teamed up with University of Manchester who's doing a research project on the sort of sociology of donors. Wow. Um, and it's, yeah, it's been a really uh, insightful topic to start digging into and mm. to just see how much there is to be exploring and how many questions it brings to the surface. Yeah. Because I think that question, we're exploring motherhood and parenting and mm. menopause and all of these things that um, uh, affect women in our industry um, at the moment through a series of chats. And mm -hmm. it's interesting, lots and lots of things are coming up, but I feel like there's something happening in maybe our generation, like, because I know so many people who are, are struggling with um, conceiving a child and going through IVF and it seems to be much, I don't know if it's just access to information that makes it feel more prominent now, but there's something 
I know there's something happening about that and this, like you said, this boon in reproductive medicine. There's something, I don't know if it's because our generation are choosing to have children later than the, the generation before us and that's causing problems that we have, we don't fully understand or whatever it is. So it's like, there's so many, yeah, so many layers to that and mm-hmm. that sounds fascinating. There really is. And I think you're right about so much of that. You know, we there is a, a real push for careers to be first and people having children later in life, which does make it more challenging to then be able to conceive. Um, but also we live in a time where we're told that if you want to have a child, there's there's science, there's ways to do this. Yeah. So there are more people who are looking for new options to allow themselves to have that be part of their lives. Whereas previously, if, if you didn't have a kid or you, or you couldn't have a kid for a myriad of reasons, um, that it just didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now it, the science is pretty unbelievable. Yeah. It's incredible what doctors are able to do. Which also brings into massive question some of you know the the understanding of what that that power is yeah. the power to be able to actually create another human through the medical advances that we now have. Yeah, yeah, Oof. it's fascinating. Whoo, babies. <laughs> And then wow. it's that thing too where like we see it on social media. We see people running around with their babies and there's body clocks that are ticking and hormones and and yeah, people so go where there's a will, there's a way. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. Uh, my, my biological clock could just keep on ticking. I don't care. <laughs> just tick away. Yeah. You're like, no, I'm not yeah. going to deal with that right now. <laughs> just we'll let it go. Or ever. Who yeah. knows? Who knows? It's all about choice, isn't it? Choice and options. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's kind of an amazing thing because we didn't necessarily used to have as much choice and option as we do now. And in some ways, that's a wonderful luxury. And in other ways, it's a huge complication. Mm. Well, my God, woman, those projects sound yeah. incredible and <laughs> so ambitious. And I'm so in awe of you. Uh, oh, the, same yeah, here. The, I'm just so impressed with all the cool stuff you guys are doing with Persistent and Nasty. It's very kind of you fantastic to, to have a, an entity like this in the community that's, yeah, making really strong work and having big conversations. Well... On the subject of big conversations yes. and the amazing scale and ambition of the projects that you're working on, you were involved in something called the Scale of Female Ambition. Yeah. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah. Oh, definitely. This was such a, a cool opportunity that was put together by National Theatre of Scotland and the Edinburgh International Festival. And they teamed up last summer to... Uh, basically take stock of the fact that there were not a lot of women, uh, a lot of female directors that were making work at sort of main stage uh, scale. Mm. And they decided that they would uh, create a program that would allow for female directors to come together um, and be able to see shows on a larger scale, be able to have conversations, be able to connect with each other, to talk through where some of those hiccups seem to be coming up that are not allowing women to kind of move forward in some way, um, and to just unpack that. Yeah. And there were eight of us that got into the program, and when it started to finish up at the end of summer, we all went, whoa, hold on. <laughs> 
this is amazing to be surrounded by other women that are making such different types of work but are all doing incredible things but happen to be in that studio space or yeah. in the corner of that festival or developing this new thing in another country and yeah. and not necessarily on the main stages here how are we going to keep moving forward with that and so uh nts has been incredibly supportive and uh, giving us space and, and being a resource to us as we keep having these conversations and looking at ways to make ourselves more visible, mm -hmm. uh, to engage in conversations about how we help each other yeah. uh, keep growing and keep doing good work. And it's been an incredible team of women to be surrounded by that are so inspiring uh, and moving that conversation forward that yeah. suddenly you don't feel like you're alone on an island going, <laughs> I've pitched that show three times. <laughs> I'm over here. Hello. Yeah. To suddenly going, whoa, this is just eight of us, but there are so many incredible female directors mm -hmm. in this country that are, and beyond, that are doing such important work that doesn't always make it to the bigger spaces. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's been nothing short of inspiring and I'm just so thrilled that we have a space to keep having those conversations and to keep supporting each other's work. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Do you have any thoughts or opinions or, or um, speculations as to why it has taken to this point and a program like that to go, hang on a minute, we are here and because it does feel to me sometimes through anecdotally talking to colleagues and friends who work in our industry who are directors or writers that there's like a, a tiny little pocket of opportunity and everyone's scrabbling for it and if you don't get it then it's like well you're not you're not being considered for main spaces anyway but everybody's like all applying for the assistant director thing for this program to be developed and it's like when do you you, you just kind of like move along like this for people who can't uh, see me I'm, I'm doing something <laughs> with my hands uh, and, then, and then eventually one person makes it up to the main studio but it, it, do you know what I mean? It just feels like there's yeah. very limited opportunity for women in particular, particularly female directors. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, would you have any thoughts about why it's why it is? Yeah, I mean you've you've hit the nail on the head with the comment of there are just only so many opportunities that exist. Yeah. So everybody is going for those opportunities, um, and eventually it's and it's only one person. You've got one director at the helm of a project, even if you've got a myriad of uh, actors and designers, there's only one. Um, so those spots are really coveted. Um, but there is also something to be said for how programming is done. Mm. Um, if there are theaters that are valuing uh, parity in these leadership roles for the productions that are being created on their stages, then those questions come into play when people are looking at who they're bringing in for these opportunities to make work on larger scales. Um, so I feel like the community is gaining a stronger consciousness of this uh, and beginning to integrate that question. I mean, the Tron Theater has been amazing. A couple, a uh, few seasons ago, they came out with a season that was... Um, very skewed. I think mm. it was out of 15 shows, only three of them were being uh, directed by women and two were written by women, or I might have switched those numbers, I'm trying to remember. Uh, but they were so open to conversation and talking about it, and since then, their seasons have been 50-50, and there's been incredible work on their stages, yeah. and they've been selling out and doing great things, so it certainly hasn't 
interfered with their ability to make oh. good things happen. It's just opened up a whole 50% of the industry's yeah. <laughs> access to their their Was that spaces. the season that you... Uh... Ruffled feathers? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, it, and to be honest, it, it, like, the... It wasn't intended to genuinely ruffle feathers. It was intended to have a conversation yeah. about the numbers, which was going, if we say that we value gender parity, how are we actually showing that in yeah. action? And a great example as well, and, and luckily, I mean, the Tron was so, Andy Arnold was so open to having that conversation. Yeah. Um, and, and that, to me, says more than anything. I, it's, it's more about how we engage yeah. with the things that seem unjust or problematic in some way or just aren't clicking in, in some mm -hmm. way so yeah in some ways it's almost less about the problem and more about well what what's it about yeah and why are we not asking the question and can we it's a, it's an easy enough fix actually yeah and I think you're absolutely right I think it is about communication and I, I don't think there was ever any doubt that Tron was willing to have that conversation yeah I think the problem was that for so long people were just sitting feeling frustrated and seeing it happen but not feeling that they had the power or the agency or mm -hmm. or the position to vocalize what you vocalize because you called it ruffling feathers but everybody all around scotland was going yes and i'm fist pumping the air right now guys who can't see me like everyone was like yes oh my god and everyone was like did you see what sarah rose said on social media oh my god that's amazing you said what everybody Aww. was thinking and and we're so grateful that you did. Thank you for being the one to put your head above the parapet because everyone was thinking of it. I think a lot of people just didn't feel like they could because there's this general feeling of like, well, I'm so, I'm trying so hard to, to scrape together a career or find an opportunity or make myself available that if I, if I do that or say that, mm -hmm. I will put myself on the back foot because nobody will work with me because I'm being difficult or I'm, mm -hmm. or I'm asking questions that they, they don't have the answers to and, and, or, and they, don't want to they don't have time yeah. for that, you know this is this fear thing of course and that's um, a huge thing in this industry you know so much of the jobs that we get are because <laughs> I mean it sounds so simplistic overly simplistic and I don't mean it that way but if you show up on time if you're able to deliver on what it is you say you're going to do and if people like you like you can get work yeah <laughs> and 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 again, yeah, and clearly it's not as simple as that. There is more to it. It's obviously your years of training and expertise and your ability to run a room and make good things happen. Mm -hmm. But to, especially in what is ultimately a very small community here compared to like my experiences in Chicago, which is massive, yeah. it's huge, or New York or or even down in London to a certain degree, everyone knows everyone here. Yeah. So if you, if you rock the boat, they're going, ooh. Yeah. And, and we all want to work. We all want to make good things happen. And I think that was what is really important in these conversations. Is it's not so much of, you know, tarring and feathering something or someone or an entity. It's how you go about it, which is that there is a whole community that values this. And yeah. we say that we value it. So how are we helping these theaters that are ultimately hiring us yeah. to maintain the values that we all collectively are agreeing upon, mm -hmm. which is what's so fascinating too about the national yeah. who has been so public in vocalizing their partnership with tonic, which is doing a huge sort of gender parity push uh, and has been an incredible leader in that charge. 
Um, and the National has on their websites a huge sort of expanse of language about their interest in diversity and inclusion. And then they come out with a season that does not actually reflect that. Yeah. Uh, and so it is the community's responsibility to help our theaters yeah. be able to do their job as best that they can, because it's also our job to do our job as best as we can. Mm -hmm. yeah. But we need both to, to make it work. And I think that's what was so staggering to so many people about the national season recently was that it feels so much like lip service. It's like you say that you value these things and you, you write a diversity and representation policy, but if you're not demonstrating those values in your actions and in your programming, then isn't it all just... Aren't you just telling us what we want to hear so we'll go away and not bother you? And in turn, yeah. what does that mean <laughs> for the community of theatre makers and the arts industry at large, it's like it, you just, it feels like you've got your privileged treehouse and you're pulling up the ladder mm. and, and that's what it feels like when you don't demonstrate commitment to the things you say you value. Yeah. Um, and it's frustrating. Yeah, it's super frustrating, it really is. And there's so many things that go into planning a, a season and a lot of times the argument is, you know, we just, we chose the best work. Mm -hmm. Uh, but that best work is still really a complex thing to, to say because yeah. you're also going, who's been given the privileged opportunity to spend all their time sort of focusing on their practice and not necessarily working oh 500 God. other jobs to yeah. make ends meet and pay their rent while they're working on their practice or who's getting access to those mentors, who's um, being able to put themselves in a position where they're very visible. Yeah. Uh, and also... We had a really fascinating conversation with the Scale of Female Ambition project as well that we all run our rooms very differently mm. and none of them are, are wrong or bad, but there is a certain perception on how a director should be running a room. Mm -hmm. um, and if that view is a certain specific way, you might look at the way another woman is running their rehearsal room and wonder if that's not as good or good enough mm. or because you're holding it to a different kind of understanding of how a room should be run, whether that's, you know, being able to sort of uh, give out the sort of orders of what's happening and, and making something happen a certain way that might feel a little bit more um, direct versus a room where it's more perhaps conversation based and it's asking certain questions and it's making space for things to flow differently. Yeah. Uh, and deciding whether or not one is right and one is wrong and one is better or one is worse. So I, th I think there's also starting to put into question that in theater spaces of going, do we have just sort of a, a one-sided view of how we make theater and how mm. we make the best theater and who's doing the best work yeah. versus some of these other ways into the process or into the product even mm -hmm. and the stories being told. And who gets to decide what's the best work yeah. as well? As a, as a like when they say, oh, it's the best work, I'm always like, well, who decided that? Yeah. And why is it the best work? Particularly mm -hmm. if I see a season where it looks, to me anyway, in my opinion, and it is just my opinion, that looks a bit stale or we're getting a, a regurgitation of some, what could only be classed as misogynistic classic <laughs> yet again. And it's like, well, why is... And, and, and don't get me wrong, I think there's a place for the classics and, you know, great... Sure, a great theatre canon, and we should we should see it. We should 
expose it and see it in new lights, etc. But I'm a bit like, well, who, get, who gets to decide that? Particularly when all over the country, and by the country I mean the United Kingdom, if we're talking about the national season, there's incredible work being made mm-hmm. in small theatres and in little studios. It's like, I don't feel... I feel like you saying this is the best work is disingenuous because I don't feel that it's being it's coming from a place where you've actually gone and assessed that. Completely. You know what I, mean? I totally know what you mean. And I think it's it's again <laughs> multi-tiered, right? Because you've got the the artistic directors that are literally looking at what comes across their desk and going, you know, this is what's actually made it to my desk. And there's plenty mm. of artists that are doing amazing things. Um, one of the conversations that came up with Scale of Female Ambition is that quite a few of the women don't feel like they can knock on the door. They don't feel like they can claim the space. And some of that's cultural. Some of that is their upbringing. It challenges how they think they're allowed to behave in spaces. And it's it's made me (laughs) recognize my Americanness. Hey, I've got an idea. Talk to me about this idea. I gotta tell you something. I have thoughts. <laughs> and don't, please don't ever lose that. Teach us. <laughs> teach us your American ways. <laughs> <laughs> and thus begins more ruffling of feathers. Um, no, but it. But there's something fascinating about reflecting on that. You know, who you have to first feel like you have the ownership to be able to go into the space of a powerful entity, which is one of these massive theaters, and be able to take ownership over your idea to say, this is important enough to be on this stage and you should listen to what I have to say. So that's already a huge thing right there that decides whether or not something even makes it into that room. Mm -hmm. Um, And then another big one that I don't think we're having enough conversations about is also funding. Mm. Um, And when Creative Scotland gives out funding to certain projects, those projects now have money to be able to go to a theater and say, hi, I'd like to team up with you because I have the money to do this. Yeah. Whereas another project that didn't get funding that is, you know, fantastic in its own right, but for whatever the reasons are that didn't end up getting the money, they don't have that same stepping stone to be able to approach a theater with that support behind it. Yeah. And as a result, it's not going to get the same kind of access because it doesn't have support under it yeah um so i think finances are a big part of this push for gender parity as well Mm. it'd be interesting to see what are the gender statistics on work that's getting funded but also you have to what is it you got to play to win yeah the idea of if a huge part i know of my own practice yeah i love spending time in rehearsal rooms and on stages and making the work but as we know in this industry, a lot of it is filling out grant applications that you get rejections from yep. constantly. So you're constantly doing admin. You're mm. constantly putting yourself out for opportunities and constantly being told, no, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> but Which... then eventually you get the one or you get the two that yeah. come along. And all of that time and energy being placed on admin and, and, and dealing with rejection, mm-hmm. it's psychologically exhausting. And then it comes back to that question of who's making the best work. It's like if you're constantly living on a knife edge and putting 40%, well, probably more than that, maybe 60 or 70% of your time into doing the admin to try and make the thing happen, then the remaining 30 to 40 is your creative time actually making the thing. And if it's only that amount of time and energy that's going on that, how can it be the best that you have to offer? And it's like, yeah, there's a, a the system is ultimately broken for not just for women, but anybody who is marginalized to try and get the opportunity 
to make good work. Yeah, it's not starting on an equal uh, playing field. It's it's not level ground for everyone. Everyone comes in with different steps up for one reason or another, or steps down. Uh, So that is a real challenge, and I, I think in some ways, by just even starting to ask these questions, it begins to change and shape our industry because for those imbalances to become balanced, (laughs) for those those things that are not on equal footing, uh, to finally be able to have an opportunity to be viewed with more uh, opportunity and value, it needs to have conscious change. It needs to be the kinds of things we're seeing of call-outs that are specifically for uh, a marginalized group so that they are getting the opportunity to work those muscles and and try those skills and grow their practice. Um, And so if we're not making space for people to come in, those doors keep staying closed. Yeah. It's funny when we do persistent and nasty script call-outs, every single time we get um, submissions from men, people who haven't read the brief uh-huh. and uh, when we get back and say thank you so much for your time and your creativity and we read your scripts and it's really great but um, this particular call out is focusing on on women and gender minorities mm-hmm. um, so for this particular round you're not eligible I'm so sorry uh-huh. and we get a lot of like you're part of the problem and it's you're discriminating <laughs> against me because I'm a man and it's like sweetheart yeah, <laughs> no yeah, well and it's about it's like yeah we're create. it might look i see why you think that but it's about creating we're creating a platform for people who feel up until this point that they have been marginalized and that's the point of this space in this moment because yeah. and that's a hard place to be in too to be the ones that are the sort of trailblazers of that but also like you know heterosexual white men like it is <laughs> I, I genuinely feel for this category of human because of that exact dilemma. You've got <laughs> lovely people who happen to identify with those labels and they are being moved aside to be able to address the imbalance. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're feeling the frustrations that a huge community has been feeling for a long time and that's hard when you just sort of rip off the blaster and go whoa you know this is a thing and I think it's helping to teach a lot of uh, men about what that experience is and to be kind of conscientious of what that is and I think we're seeing a lot of uh, really incredibly kind and compassionate and thoughtful and and really smart art makers who are recognizing this and yeah. looking at how they can be part of that solution and to be supportive of the community at large. Yeah. We have to move aside to make space for uh, others to move forward. Yeah. Um, and we also have to build our teams, mm-hmm. which is that when good things happen to us, we have the opportunity to bring people with us. And, and so, yeah, so I, I, it's, a, it's, it's one of those funny things because I, I totally believe in us needing to claim space. We have to make space to be able to address the imbalance. Um, 
But in doing that, it means that we also become educators for a whole community that has never had to understand why the space needs to be carved out in the first place. Yeah. Um, and in some ways, it's been really heartwarming to see some incredible men be some of the strongest feminists yeah. and just be incredible leaders in some of that charge and others who are still learning mm -hmm. and hopefully that knowledge will will help to kind of keep making this a, an industry that's better for everyone absolutely and we're all still learning i think yeah oh yeah. um and i think we're quite lucky in scotland i think you're right i think we've got some really compassionate thoughtful and really good allies in the yeah. heterosexual white male category of our theatre makers yeah. in our industry here in Scotland and I think yeah I think we just all need to understand that there's a spectrum of getting out of the way like you and I sit yes, here as definitely privileged white women yeah um uh, we have experienced a certain level of um discrimination because of our gender certainly but there are there are, we have a lot of privilege in many ways so there's, there's times where we have to get out of the way and I think all of this is a learning curve um, because there's been a fairly oppressive power dynamic in play now for most of time yeah. and it's only now that we're reaching a point in society where we're starting to unpack that and dismantle it and it's going to be tough no, I don't think anybody thinks it's going to be easy. No, and it's um, going to take that time you're talking about as yeah. well. It doesn't happen overnight. You know, a lot of, especially with a lot of these theaters, they work on a three-year plan, if not more, because of how the funding structures are set up, that as soon as, you know, one little drop is put into the ocean, for that to kind of begin to ripple beyond that takes a long time. Yeah. And it is that thing where we are constantly learning. So as soon as we go, oh, we think we figured that out, and then you go, oh, wait, actually, ooh, yeah. we haven't. Um, and I think that mentality is an important one to maintain, mm -hmm. the idea that we can't stop learning. We can't think that we've ever gotten it fully figured out. Yeah. Um, and that we're being inclusive of a myriad of perspectives mm -hmm. because... Every, I feel like people always have good intentions for the most part. Like mm -hmm. they just want to, we all want to come in and make really good art and have people love it and, and be in, in inspired by what we're doing and feel like we're having an impact on people. And then there's these categories that kind of let some of us get access to that a little more freely yeah. <laughs> than others. But that perspective and that intention is all still good. Yeah. It's, it's then sort of looking at the structure of it, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And what do you guys have coming up with Persistent and Nasty? What's coming up for you guys? Oh, thank you for asking. Um, well, we're um, spending a lot of time figuring things out. Uh, like you said, um, intention and then trying to implement uh, is all part of that. And we're constantly learning. So what we'd like to do next is um, build the podcast and grow that a little bit more because we feel that that's a good way of um, talking to lots of different people about what they're doing and, and getting different perspectives. Um, and, and we'd love to do more with our live script event, but we are very hampered right now by resource and lack yeah. of money. Plus we're thinking about the different ways in which, what are we doing already that's, um, that needs to be more inclusive? So for example, we need to find the time and energy and money to sit and transcribe all our podcasts because 
deaf people can't enjoy them at the mm -hmm. moment. Mm -hmm. So like, there's like lots of different ways in which we are trying to look at what we're doing already and how it, it, it needs to be better. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so we're just kind of like just listening to what people are telling <laughs> us and, 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 and trying to build that into what we do and, and try and make what we do already a better opportunity for people. So yeah. That's fabulous. That just is so fantastic. It. And it is such a, a constantly sort of moving beast isn't oh God, it? Yeah. trying to kind of as soon as you've been able to do something then yeah. there's clearly more that comes from that something yeah there's more to do and how cool that you guys are asking those questions in the first place and looking at ways to make it more inclusive I think that's just from the very outset I think that was always kind of at our core because mm -hmm. we don't pretend to my god we don't pretend to know about anything really <laughs> like we yeah a lot of the time we just feel like oh we don't know what we're doing we're just kind of like yeah responding and looking at what we would like to see happen and and kind of be motivated motivated by our frustrations about what's not happening yeah and i think that that leaves room for for surprise moments to happen i yeah. suppose as well you know when you kind of are putting your feelers out there and trying to find, you know, how the, the work is most useful or impactful and then yeah. you become surprised. We had that, ha it's making me think I perform as well as yes. uh, directing uh, and I do a lot of clowning based work and I do a lot of physical theater um, and lots of just kind of multidisciplinary theater making. Um, but last summer, uh, we had, me and my collaborator, Rexy Cantier, we had 100 pounds and we were like, oh, okay, you know, we've got some street theater slots that we can book in for the Edinburgh Fringe. And I have done so much study in theater for social change and lots of, you know, message-driven theater and mm. work that is going to change the world. <laughs> and, and I started feeling genuinely a bit burnt out on it, this mm. idea of going, why is it that everything always feels like there's, it's, it's got to change something, it's got to, it's, we have to grapple with this thing. And I started just really finding myself going, ooh. Yeah. And we were like, what if we just did something super fun? Like, just <laughs> really fun. Like, it's, it's entertaining and it's about getting people to, like, have a good time. We want to go into public spaces and disrupt public spaces to get people out of this monotony. And so we created something called Unicorn Dance Party. So it's social it media is... that just the sight of a social media made me happy. <laughs> <laughs> it is a total joy. It's exactly yeah. what it sounds like. We go into these public spaces and we're dressed like unicorns in like silver spandex. <laughs> uh, and we put on some serious jams and we get everybody dancing using moves that are inspired by prancer size, which is yeah. like jazzer size, <laughs> but so much better. It's like horse inspired movements. Um, and the movements are all really inclusive and it's fun and we give everybody unicorn sparkles which are sort of like these little bindi stickers yeah. that are shiny that we put on people's foreheads and we get people dancing and what we have found so fascinating about this is that in an attempt to create something that would just be like fun let's stop trying to just like change the world all the time because we feel the weight of all this pressure of everything that's going awry around mm. us that in some ways this has become such a rebellious act because we're getting people to start finding their own 
joy yeah. to say yes to the silly women in the unicorn costumes <laughs> and just move and laugh and have a good time because we carry a lot of weight in our day-to-day -day lives that can't always be fixed with the snap of a finger. And by getting people to stop and just, even if they see it from afar and just go, what's that? And smile for a moment and go on yeah. with their day, then we've been successful in disrupting a pattern. Yeah. We've danced with people in wheelchairs. We've danced with lots of little kids. We've danced with so many gay men. <laughs> we have danced with grannies and grandpas, lots of girl groups. We had a guy, this was one of my favorites. He was on his stag do and he was wearing one of those costumes where it's like, you stand in the costume with, there was like a unicorn that he was riding, but it's right. like the one piece costume. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I'm describing that properly. Um, but yeah, you put it on. So he was like the princess head <laughs> while his legs were the unicorn legs. Yeah. If that makes sense. And anyway, he came around with the stag do and he was like, my unicorns. And we had a whole like, yeah, uh, a, a trio dance extravaganza that was really special <laughs> I love it, it but you're right fun. just doing something for pure joy at the moment yeah it's a rebellious act and it's you're so you're so right constantly thinking about the ways in which the world is messed up and how we can therefore fix it is exhausting it's so exhausting and it will burn you out so quickly and it will make you feel like your art is never even doing enough mm -hmm. because it's, it, it yeah, because you want to see that change so badly and you're spending yeah. so much of your waking hours grappling with how this show is going to be addressing these topics. And yeah. You can feel like it's just a, a losing battle. One, yeah, 100%. Um, and I think that's, for us, with Persistent and Nasty, we, it, we, we do struggle sometimes with that balance of, of figuring out where, where we have limits, like, like in terms of our ability to, to keep running this initiative and constantly be questioning and, and, and receiving responses to those questions and building it into what we're doing. And yeah, it, it, sometimes it feels like we spend all of our time thinking about the ways in which we are getting everything right that we're actually not doing anything. Do you know mm. what I mean? You get almost like you get ground to a halt yeah. in terms of trying to have action take place because you're like, is this right? Is this right? Am I doing it? Are you, are you included? Ah, and then it just gets, um, it gets too much. So yeah. things, uh, it's important to me to also find, make things fun with mm. persistent nasty. What can we do that could be enjoyable? Um, and live podcast recordings are things that I think we're toying with that idea yeah. at some point down the line with a range of different people where the audience can interact. And obviously those are, those are, environments where things could get heavy but like where are the where are the ways that we can have it be fun and yeah. still have the message be there but yeah have yeah it. and still joy as well i mean it's certainly a, an interesting thing to dig into you you catch a lot more flies with honey right, right. you know yeah. there's that there is something to be said for that sometimes when we're screaming so loud you can't hear us you mm -hmm. know yeah. So there is something to be said for for finding other ways to engage in some of that change making. Yeah. And sometimes it's a real gentle thing. Sometimes it's a total party. And yeah. It's really fun. Um, it yeah. It, there's something fascinating about making space for that. And also, I think it speaks a lot to what our 
community is also feeling when there's mm. so much bureaucracy and red tape to try to get through something and it feels so arduous yeah. and you persevere and you do it and you make the thing and people come and see it and they're like, yeah, I feel the weight of that too, <laughs> yes. But then we're all still carrying that, you know, mm. so there is something interesting about subverting that in some way. How does that, that weight actually become something that we joyously sort of carry and, and volley back and forth so that we can continue with my metaphor here, like <laughs> hit the ball over the net and out of the court. <laughs> That's a sport. Get out of here. That's a sports <laughs> metaphor. I'm a girl. I don't understand that. <laughs> I know. How can we understand sports? <laughs> no. Oh. Yeah. I mean, it's really silly. It's so silly. Yeah. And the red tape thing is fascinating. I had a, oh, this was so crazy. And this is again, another like U.S. versus U.K. thing or, or specifically Scotland thing. Um, uh, when I try to do an outdoor performance piece in the U.S., there is so much paperwork. I have to ensure that I have, you know, insurance booked out. I have to make sure that it, I filled in everything. I have to pay for the privilege to have something be done outside. I have to submit it in plenty of time because it's going to take at least six months for that to kind of get back to me before it can be approved. Yeah. It is just insane. And then I did the five minute theater uh, project thing. Do you remember yeah. that? From like ages ago. I did, I did that too. Yeah. yeah. The theater company I was involved at the time. We had a piece in that too. It was fantastic. It was great. Yeah. I had such a good time with that. But I wanted, we were, it was me and, and my friend uh, Angie Cassidy, and we were doing a piece that was on Buchanan Street. And we were like, yeah, we'll, we'll do our piece there. And then, of course, NTS was like, fantastic. You just need to get a permit from the city council. And I went, Oh my God, I'm not going to be able to do this. It's going to cost so much money. It's going to take me forever. And so I called up the city council. I found the number, called up the city council and was like, hi, I need to speak to somebody about getting, you know, uh, permission to perform on Buchanan Street for an event connected with the National Theatre of Scotland. And they were like, oh, great. Hold on one second. I'll pass you right through to the person. They yeah. passed me right through to the person I needed to speak to who was like, oh, this sounds great. And actually, my cousin works over with NTS. And oh, this is fabulous. Oh, it sounds great. Could we send a photographer over to where you guys are doing it? Maybe we'll do a little write-up on this. I'll send you over the paperwork right now. Just get it back to me and I'll, I'll send it right over. That was it. Didn't cost a thing. It got through. They Like one degree of separation in this small country <laughs> and I was like wow obviously not everything is always that always simple. that simple so this yeah. is clearly like one side of that spectrum but oh if only right well ours was um yeah what did you guys do did, uh, outdoors it was um basically the premise was uh, a man on his lunch break sitting on a park bench and a guy sits down next to him and they have a conversation and it transpires that the guy who sat down next to him is deaf and it's oh, a kind of cool. like kind of absurdist like heightened comedy kind of uh -huh. vibe but we just decided to do it in the botanic gardens on a bench in there and then invited a bunch of people to come and be audience <laughs> so it was technically site specific but we didn't ask anyone we just walked <laughs> up and did it um, and filmed it so we were just like style. yeah <laughs> I was just like, it's fine. If we, we, it's, it's five minutes. We'll, we'll get in, we'll get out. It'll be totally fine. I love it. I love it. Well, to be honest, that's sort of what I thought we would be doing. And then I was like, oh, hmm. I feel like I have that extra layer of bureaucracy where I'm like, I could get kicked out of this country if I cause too many problems. <laughs> that's true. If I get arrested. <laughs> I... <laughs> so there's also that kind of interesting layer of going, woo. 
But that's great. I love that you're yeah. just like, we're just going to do it. Yeah. And it's you did. happen. And if we get moved along, we get moved along. We'll just make it work. What a beautiful setting, too. What a it special was. place in Glasgow. The Botanic Gardens yeah. are... It was pretty gorgeous. It was like the perfect setting for it, considering the themes and stuff. And we were just like, but yeah, people, and it, it was fine. People stopped uh-huh. and watched, like people who were in the park anyway. And and the people who work in the park, like, you know, Parks and Rec kind of people didn't seem too bothered either. Like, it was quite nice because I expected <laughs> to be, you know, I was up to high dough because I was like, oh, we are so going to get moved along so quickly. But it didn't, people just seemed like, oh, look, there's a thing. There's a thing that's happening. It. I think that's so Glasgow too though, isn't it? That there's like, there's this kind of ethos in Glasgow that like, everyone's always up for a chat, everyone's up for an experience, everyone's up for just having a good time. <laughs> so when something comes along that's maybe unexpected like that, it's, yeah. it seems like the first response often, often, and again, these are broad, speaking in broad terms, is going, ooh, yeah. there, people are really curious here. Yeah. They, yeah, there's an appetite for joy. There's a yes. <laughs> joy and celebration. That is for sure. Oh well, Sarah Rose, it was absolutely lovely to chat to you. Uh, that's us up, off, out of time now. Aww, thank um, you so much for having oh, me. Oh no, my pleasure. It, really, it's been an absolute joy to talk to you. Um, so I guess what we we tend to ask a little question at the end yeah. um, of everyone, and I say little question, but actually the question is often like people like hmm that's actually a big question and it's uh what are you most excited about what is your hope for the future in terms of everything that we've been talking about oh yeah (laughs) that is a big question isn't it what is a hope for the future i'm most excited about um i suppose the the willingness and openness to not knowing (laughs) You know, to to maintain those good intentions and to ask, be better about asking the right questions and to not to be all Pollyanna about it, but to start looking at some of the the good that comes out of these needs for rebellious acts. Mm. That when shit hits the fan and stuff is really shitty and we as artists are able to take on a different perspective to how we deal with those issues, it's a total gift and that there's so many opportunities and ways that we can collectively uh, make things better uh, and to not kind of lose some of that hope when we get bogged down by all the crap that's going on because it's so easy to get bogged down by it. But we're artists, we're, we're different. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a good thing. We're insane. Uh, we, yeah, we, can, we are totally insane. Um, but also we've got big ideas and for us to be more confident with those big ideas and not censor ourselves and be the ones that knock on doors because we've got something good to say and we've got a reason for people to listen to us. So I suppose that's a very waffling way of just saying that I, for our future, I hope that there's a continued confidence in, in artists with great ideas who are getting access to, to bring those ideas forward to ultimately make things better for everyone. Awesome. Thank you so much. And thank Thanks. you for everything that you do. Thank you for being uh, 
so wonderful and open and supportive and talented oh. and, and thank you for being here in Scotland so that oh. we can benefit from all that you are and all that you do. And I am certainly better for getting to be here. What an amazing community to be part of. So thank you. Thank you so much, Sarah. This has been Sarah Rose Graber and Louise Oliver. And until next time, stay nasty. Persistent and Nasty is produced in association with Edinburgh-based live arts production house Civil Disobedience. Civil Disobedience is committed to creating and supporting queer work and theatre and art that addresses issues of inequality and injustice. You can find out more about the Persistent and Nasty project and all the work that Civil Disobedience do by visiting wearecivildisobedience.com. You can also find us on all the usual social media platforms. On Twitter at We Are Also Civil, on Instagram at We Are Civil Disobedience, and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash We Are Civil Disobedience. <laughs>